Hello, 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 and welcome to the 13th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, although on this show I've been expressly optimistic about the benefits of free market capitalism, I am fully aware that it is not perfect by any means. Certainly, on the individual level, it is not uncommon to hear of cases whereby corporations mistreat their customers through incompetent services or faulty products, or of cases where hundreds of employees are let go at once due to cost-cutting policies. On the macro level, wealth inequality and and wage stagnation is becoming more pronounced in developed countries, while fears of investments in AI replacing human labor add uncertainty to our future standard of living. It is, re- it is in response to these factors that the idea of a universal basic income or a basic income guarantee has started to take hold. To put it simply, a universal basic income or a UBI is a monthly cash distribution from the government to each of its citizens unconditionally. You get it whether you're working or not, disabled or not, and you can spend it on anything you want, be it groceries or alcohol. The cash amount will be set above the pov- poverty level and would, according to Scott's sentence in his article for the World Economic Forum, quote, be a promise of equal opportunity, not equal outcome, a new starting line set above the poverty line, end quote. However, Sentence promise of a basic income for all is not without its skepticisms. On the implementation side, it is unclear which system of universal basic income is best, you know, whether it works as a complement or a replacement to current welfare schemes, and which programs will be replaced by UBI, or whether taxes would need to be increased to fund the UBI expense. On the results side, one of the more obvious criticisms is perhaps whether UBI will incentivize individuals to just stay home and choose not to work, or whether increased taxation will produce negative second-order effects on the economy. Finally, on a more philosophical level, we can ask what justifies a welfare state and what level of government intrusion is susceptible within our economic and political spheres. Helping me to clarify what UBI means or implies is today's guest, Otto Leto, from Finland. Otto considers himself as many things, philosopher, scientist, politi- politician, composer, artist, and blogger, and has touched on the topics of UBI through articles, interviews, and academic papers. Otto has a bachelor's in English from the University of Helsinki and a master's in uh, social and moral philosophy from the same university. He is currently pursuing a PhD in political economy at King's College London and is a member of the Green Party of Finland while also being a former chairman of the Finnish branch of BN or the Basic Income Earth Network. Otto, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So first off, why do you think that a universal basic income or UBI is necessary in today's world? A UBI is, to me, you know, it's both this quite far-flung philosophical idea, um, but it's also a very practical solution in many ways. Mm. And I think the reason why so many people are talking about it these days is, is that it's, it is a fairly simple idea that once you actually explain it to people, that mm-hmm. um, giving people cash, all people, all citizens, a uh, sufficient amount of cash that they can survive, mm-hmm. um, is a very simple idea that can be practically um, uh, introduced into a rich society and perhaps even a poorer one, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, I mean, I think... Um, of course, there are lots of trends that are happening. Um, the, you mentioned some of them mm-hmm. um, that are increasing the demand for reforms. Um, but, but I think that um, it's, it's partially a confluence of um, a long list of failures of, of existing welfare policies in mm-hmm. many countries. Um, so Finland, for example, where I'm from, where um, the reasons for that are, are mostly about uh, the failures of the current welfare system to provide sufficient protection for all people and to give them sufficient incentives for work and 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 um, and protection for, from um, various um, ailments and and um, difficulties that people in this complex society can mm. fall into. Um, so so that's that's I think um, across the Western countries, but also beyond. Uh, why this debate has been rising quite strongly in the last couple of years. Hmm. Hmm. Also, when you when you talk about uh, the debate about UBI, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but 
One of the one of the the biggest factors is uh, this uh, this threat of uh, AI investment in replacing human labor, and there's been a big debate between Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk uh, of Tesla, yeah. uh, Facebook and Tesla respectively, on this threat of AI investment. So, what do you think of this claim of the threat of AI? Do you think it's a strong enough justi- justification or a uh, threat? Well, I mean, AI is just one small part of the picture, and and AI is really just um one form of robotization or the the transformation of of labor into into automated forms mm. and ai is just kind of a one very advanced form of that and of course ai itself can be developed higher and higher and mm. and more and more complicated so actually there is really no end to how complicated and how capable uh, ai led robots can become in the future mm. um and uh, we are already seeing how AI and robots are replacing, uh, you know, so many lines of work uh, from the self-driving cars to even uh, chess players and Go players being yeah. beaten by, <laughs> by robots. Um, so it's certainly a very real uh, phenomenon that's happening. Um, but I mean, the, the bigger issue is not AI itself or the, or the danger of, of them taking over humanity and enslaving us in some uh, dystopian vision but more just the fact that more and more um more and more labor can be uh, performed more efficiently mm. without the involvement of of at least mass mass labor mm. perhaps some labor will always be necessary but certainly uh, at least uh, people will need to move into new occupations and they will need to need to come up with ways of transitioning smoothly mm. from one field to another so w- whether people will find new occupations or not we are going to be seeing more and more people getting unemployed and that itself requires um i think a safety net that can handle such a such a state um whether it's temporary or permanent i cannot say mm-hmm. yeah so so yeah i i think you you brought up another uh, interesting perspective there when you talk about how ubi can help the less well off because normally when people talk about uh ubi or sort of the, the the thinkers or the people who have seen talking about ubi they mention all these threats but they rarely talk about this perspective that you brought up, which is that UBI offers as a better alternative to current welfare schemes. So, of course, mm-hmm. you know, with this uh, investment of AI, there's going to cause a lot of disruption. A lot of people are going to get out of work. But you think uh, you, you you don't say that, oh, UBI, UBI is needed just on this basis. You say that the current welfare system is not strong enough to support the amount of disruption that we're, they're facing. That's why UBI is a better alternative. Yes. I mean, Mm. first of all, the welfare system has been designed to be very nationalistic. I mean, most of the welfare systems are based on the nation state model, which basically means that uh, capital investments are quite local and Mm. uh, movement movement of workers and capital is quite limited. Mm. But the expansion of of global trade and the breaking down of these barriers has meant that uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, European countries, North American countries, uh, Asian countries, you know, are facing new um, levels of uncertainty about future where, Mm. you know, uh, speculations in currencies and speculations in uh, rapid shifts in technologies of all these various forces can cause quite sudden Mm. movements uh, and and sudden shifts of production from one country to another. um, and of course, we've seen with the global economic crisis how fragile the system is um, mm. already. Um, so we need to think more globally and we need to think more in terms of how can we make sure that people vote for policies that keep these forces of openness to global trade um, open, but mm. also, um, you know, secures a certain level of protection because the whole point of of the creative destruction of capitalism is that there will be a destruction and mm. the destruction is necessary and it is even beneficial for the long-term overall effects of, of what process produces. Um, but since the destruction is quite arbitrary in many ways or it is not the fault of those people necessarily who suffer mm. from the 
forces of labor, for example, moving from one country to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, and we need to have systems that compensate, I think, people for, for that, but compensate in a way that keeps the process going and doesn't, um, you know, um, doesn't doesn't cause this rise in in protectionism that we've also been seeing as kind mm. of the other alternative approach. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting view there. All right, so okay, so let's uh, move on from there. And there's this we we will be talking about the features of uh, UBI uh, l- later on uh, during this interview. But I just want to want to talk to you because you come from uh, Finland which is a place that has special interest for UBI supporters because it is generally seen of a supportive of the policy. So can you tell us about some of the landmark proposals for UBI that Finland has uh, has introduced? Yeah, I mean, Finland is is um, quite unique in many ways. Um, but first of all, we don't have anything like UBI um, as, as a national policy. We uh, we have we have currently uh, a very active debate on UBI, mm. and we are currently experimenting. Or the government is um, holding holding a two year experiment that mm. started January of this year, 2017, and it's due to run until the end of next year. It's a two year experiment on on UBI that has a sample of 2,000 randomly selected. Um, citizens, um, um, unemployed people mm-hmm. who are given UBI unconditionally mm-hmm. um, of about uh, about 600, a bit less than 600 euros a month, mm-hmm. which is not a lot of money, but it is comparable to the basic welfare benefits that people are given in this country. Okay. And, and it's the culmination of a long debate that we've had in this country. And it should be emphasized that in this country, UBI is seen kind of as a very moderate reform. Mm. It's, it's, it's always posed, um, as a kind of, um, rationalization of, of the complex web of benefits that we have. It's posed, um, on a quite moderate level. Um, mm. like could, I could said, you, could you explain that what you mean by rationalization? I mean, okay, yes, exactly. It's, it's rationalization in the sense that it, it makes it more predict, uh, predictable, first of all, Mm. and more understandable for people. Mm. Um, because the complexity has meant that people don't even know what they're entitled to. Mm. Um, and the, the reasonings behind the, uh, the decisions, um, and the application processes can be very complicated and burdensome. Mm. And, and this all has meant that there has been a lot of people who, um, you know, suffer, uh, unnecessary, you know, um, um, stress, um, yeah. and, 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 and all kinds of problems with the system. Yeah. So, so it's kind of a simplification of the complexity. Mm. Um, and, and, um, trying to bring the sort of underlying principles of the, of the, of the welfare system into a more clear and understandable form. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to ask here, uh, you used to be chairman of the Finnish branch of BN or the Basic Income Earth Network. So could you, could you briefly tell us what the organization does and maybe how it has helped some of the, the, the discussion of UBI in Finland? Yeah, I mean, um, BN is a global organization. It actually started out as a European uh, organization, mm. but it but but it's become a global one um, as 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 the idea of UBI has spread, um, and it's quite active all around. Um, uh, it organizes conferences. It brings together. It's basically just a loose network of researchers and activists around the world, mm. and um, and in in the Finnish case too, it was just a collection of people who were interested in basic income coming together and sort of thinking about how how can we promote this, how can we uh, promote research on this, because obviously there are still a lot of things that we don't know and there are lots of different theoretical approaches to it and, and all that. So mm. so what BN does is um, it, for example, gathers news from around the world, aggregates them on their website, Basic Income News, which is a really good source for for news on, on basic income. Mm. And um, and promotes research in this area and um, organizes conferences, like I said. So, um, so, it, but but it doesn't have any any particular agenda uh, beyond that. So, so the BN um, model of basic income is is really just a, 
it doesn't have like a very concrete particular model since it aggregates like researchers from around the world mm. and different views. So it tries to be as neutral as possible to be this platform where people can come together and discuss and often debate and sometimes agree and, and sometimes disagree on the particular uh, implementations of it. But But the central idea is just you know we can we can agree on the central premise of giving everybody um access to sufficient um level of income that is paid monthly usually monthly uh or weekly in some cases to to people uh, so it's 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 a very basic central premise around which people then aggregate hmm, i see so so you would you would say that it's um you know you would draw the line and maybe think tank or you know like a online platform for discussion but not political activists in that sense. Yeah, I mean I mean there are political activists in inside the network and we do, you know, I mean we we are open to political debate but we we are definitely a, a group that brings together people from various political backgrounds so mm. we are not going to be um you know arguing for a leftist solution or a libertarian solution but mm. we're you know bringing these people together. I see. I see. It's very interesting. All right, so let's move on to some of the philosophical philosophical underpinnings of UBI. So you have a paper, an academic paper written out, titled The Limited Welfare State as Utopia, The Case for a Libertarian Basic Income. So you make a case for libertarianism, the so-called, quote, bleeding heart libertarianism, that accepts the provision of welfare or public goods as part of the government's responsibility going so far as to argue how philosophers such as John Locke, Adam Smith, or F.A. Hayek were uh, supportive of this view. So I, th- I thought it was quite interesting that you consider the view of the bleeding heart libertarian as sort of a middle ground of two political excre- extremes. So I was wondering if you could uh, help to explain these extreme positions and how the bleeding heart libertarian position offers itself as a sort of middle ground or compromise. Yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of... For me, bleeding heart libertarianism is a, is a kind of radical pro, uh, proposition, at least the kind of the form that I'm doing. And, mm. and when I say middle position, I, I really mean that it sort of tries to um, combine the best aspects of of kind of the innovations in libertarian theory mm. and the sort of deep deep uh, understanding of the of the value of liberty that libertarian and classical liberal philosophy and, and yeah. research and economic theory has has yeah. brought forth in the last couple of hundred years really yeah. and trying to sort of really take that seriously on the one hand and on the other hand also kind of take seriously the idea that you know markets also fail and yeah. and um, but also that um, that it's possible to uh, give people um, access to um, a good level of basic infrastructure in a society, a good level of basic education. And if we do this in a careful way, um, and that that is why I call it the limited welfare state, because Mm. the limits of the state are very important. How much of intrusion into the private affairs of people do we allow? Mm. How much of it do we think is necessary? And I think that's the libertarian side of my argument is that all these things can be fine, you know, uh, providing healthcare and, and, and all these things to people in some form or another. Mm. But the form matters, the, the, the shape in which, uh, these things are provided matters. And the, the less the government tries to, um, monopolize the, the various fields and the less the government tries to interfere into the private decisions of individuals, mm. the better we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I just wanted to bring this up because throughout the paper, um, when you're talking about bleeding heart libertarianism, I thought this was interesting. So where you sort of um, have agreement with the maybe maybe you call them the hardline libertarians is that you're in favor of a limited government in terms of their powers. Certainly, you want them to have a strong enforcement of property rights or individual rights and as such. But how you differ is that you differ on this idea of. Um, what kind of public good you can provide to sort of increase social welfare in the sense that, you know, where some hardline libertarians would say, okay, maybe the government should provide schooling or, or, you know, build roads and such. You say, you, you, you take it a little step further to the left and say, okay, we need to provide, uh, you know, uh, this basic income and stuff like that. Is, is that sort of a, a rough summary of, uh, of your position there? 
Yeah, but like my, my views on healthcare can be summarized as quite left wing in the sense that I do believe that, you know, healthcare should be kind of provided for all people, but it, they can also be described as quite libertarian in the sense that I don't think that the government should monopolize, for example, uh, the field of healthcare. It should provide people access, but I think people should nonetheless have the option of using non-governmental services and should have the option of, uh, of, for mm. example, making purchasing decisions from different service providers. Mm. And I'm even quite willing to go, go quite in the direction of libertarianism and say that science and healthcare should be, should not be regulated heavily. The, the, the regulation of this field should be quite minimal. So mm. I'm, I'm in favor of minimal regulation, um, and I, and I don't think that minimal regulation is in any way incompatible um, uh, or, or um, yeah, incompatible with uh, providing uh, these services if these mm. services are provided in a way that nonetheless uh, leaves uh, the markets uh, largely free in in their operation. Mm. Um, so 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 I mean I, I think this has been a kind of a red herring for a long time that. People have argued that either we must have a, a strong government that provides these uh, welfare uh, provisions, but at the same time regulates the markets and um, prevents the bad co- corporations from mm. oppressing everybody and all that. Yeah. But, but my, my view is, is uh, much more nuanced that I believe that the provision of these welfare services is all fine, but um, if people... Uh, want to innovate in the markets in the wealth in the realm of healthcare or education they mm. should be allowed to do so and they should be quite free uh, in their ability to uh, to produce new uh, services for people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so so building on that right so the concept of uh, so you so you introduce these ideas you talk about this contrast and you talk about the position of the bleeding heart libertarianism so so I, I just wanted to ask you then, uh, do you think that UBI is especially s- uh, suited for this uh, position that you're talking about? Well, I mean, I, I think it makes perfect sense within the system because I think um, cash is transferable to property. And if we give people cash, it's really just a way of giving people property. And it mm. is private property in the sense that it it is up to them to spend it as they wish. So they can turn it into whatever form of consumption or investment that they want mm. and since we give people this freedom we also give them freedom um, to consume and produce and to generate these kind of free market effects with mm. that money mm. and, and, and thus we should combine it with free markets uh, because we should ha- have um, lots of uh, competition in uh, in services and, and goods goods um, and, and investment opportunities so that this money can be most efficiently used. So in the same paper, you mentioned that, um, quote, welfare too should be measured as the empowerment of individuals to pursue their private ends. And um, so two questions here, and I think you've already talked to, uh, about this issue a little bit. So I want to play devil's advocate from the hardcore libertarian perspective. And I want to ask if you do not think that the the free market presents enough opportunities for individuals to sort of achieve their own private aspirations. You know, even if you are the the, the sort of uh, thinking that maybe even if you are dirt poor, you can still find opportunities to work yourself up. So the question being that, why is there a fundamental need for welfare in the first place? Do you think that the free market enough uh, itself is not enough to uh, provide all these social benefits? Well, well, first of all, my proposal is not just UBI and anything else. It's UBI plus free markets for most Mm. things. So I I definitely want to combine these things rather than set them apart or set them in opposition to each other. And um, but I don't because for me, liberty only has value as far as it actually gives people something that they want or something that they need. Uh, for me, I, I take kind of a very utilitarian point of view that I, that really what people do with liberty is what matters is it's it's what they can what the kind of power that they have of choice the power of actually pursuing their happiness in the in the Jeffersonian sense that mm. matters. It's not liberty in some abstract sense, you know, it, because liberty in abstract sense is, is empty formalism in a way. Yeah. It's it's really only what people can do with it that that matters, and so so 
In many cases, for example, it's actually quite shameful how governments have prevented people from taking advantage of, of labor opportunities. And, and of course, governments are one of the biggest reasons why so many unemployed and poor people mm. have been unable to find uh, suitable occupations. I completely agree with this. And I, mm. and I think that's why deregulation of labor markets and of, uh, of technologies and, and, um, and businesses and financial markets and all that is very important. Um, but I mean, I think that most people who are poor uh, will not be able to, you know, magically find uh, labor uh, providers that, 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 you know, that don't don't find people who are willing to who are willing to employ them right right when they need right when they need the money. Uh, it's not quite that easy as as it sounds in theory and the mm. kind of the. The information costs, the transformation costs, sort of the transaction costs, are are quite uh, quite uh, prevalent in in many in many of these markets. Even if they were uh, purely competitive in some ideal sense, you, you're still going to have lots of imperfections, lots of uh, uh, mismatches and delays. Mm. Um, and co- when we combine these things with the horrendous uh, legislative barriers that many governments have placed um, in front of people's efforts, that means that mo- many poor people in- indeed do not have uh, quite the free access to um, to wonderful opportunities um, that that we wish them to have. Mm. And UBI would, I believe make it more easy to deregulate labor markets. It would make it easier to um, combine these efforts towards uh, freeing up people's opportunities in other ways mm. because basic income is not supposed to be a replacement of of uh, free market opportunities for poor people. It's supposed to be uh, just the, the basis from which they can uh, start pursuing their own goals. Mm. It's just saying there's certain level of kind of op- obscene poverty that we don't want to witness. Like it doesn't serve any great purpose. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. So um, I just wanted to ask you a second question uh, on, on this notion of uh, welfare and empowering the individual citizens, right, to pursue their own private end. So yeah. And I, I think I already can sort of anticipate your answer in this. So I want to ask if if uh, you think that individuals in a free society are able to provide sort of the support for the impoverished through maybe charity or voluntary services, or do you think that this is uh, not enough? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a just society where where voluntary charity is the only means of helping poor people, precisely because of the reasons that I've given earlier, that I mm. do believe that poor people have a kind of a, a natural-born right to basic access to resources that nobody can claim any exclusive monopolistic uh, right over. Um, so I do believe that, that things like access to basic natural resources uh, does kind of give a good justification for, for uh, from a justice point of view for that. Mm. But But just from a kind of a point of view of, of, of free society. I mean, I, I don't think that UBI is an, is an end goal in and of itself. What it is, it's, it's a kind of a mechanism for granting people basic freedom, basic property, basic income. Mm. Um, but historically, charities have been uh, imperfect, to say the least, in mm. how they provide us, uh, uh, help to people. They often... Uh, you know, give preference to uh, kind of um, you know good groups that 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 have you know that that are sympathetic um, and and that are easily identifiable. But lots of problems that people have, lots of needs are hard to identify except by the people themselves. Yeah. And and thus, thus I think uh, giving them cash is the best way to make sure that they can actually help themselves uh, with that money. Okay. All right. So um, let's move on to addressing some of the criticisms of uh, UBI. Um, of course, one of the more uh, poignant, uh, sorry, one of the more obvious criticisms is that, you know, people say UBI would just make people stay at home instead of working. You just sit on the couch and watch TV and stuff like that. So underlying this criticism, of course, is the economic concept of the, the substitution versus the income effect. 
So in terms in terms of uh, labor wages, the substitution effect predicts that if individuals they receive a higher wage, they'll work more since it is more profitable than than leisure. And then the income effect predicts that if uh, in individuals who have a higher wage can now maintain a decent standard of living by doing less work. So I wanted to ask you, and and you seem to think that um, it falls more. It sort of depends on the level of UBI that is being given. That sort of drives which effect is going to happen to to a particular individual. So I want to ask you, you know, what has the empirical data on UBI programs or experiments in Canada and Alaska shown on this matter? And you know, have they been able to predict whether people would just stay home or if they'll continue to go out and and, and work? So uh, first of all, the um, the question of work incentives is always a problem with any kind of uh, scheme of, of welfare provision. I mean, mm. any uh, system that provides welfare for people will have a work in disincentive effect, at least, uh, um, you know, ceteris paribus. Of course, we might conceive of situation where it acts as a kind of a Keynesian boost, for example, for, mm. for demand or whatever. But at least at least under most circumstances, welfare will act as a work disincentive. But then again, most governments do provide welfare already. So the point of comparison should not be, you know, the absence of welfare, but it should be the current system that we have. And, and compared to those, the the relevant factors are things like marginal tax rate and and uh, the callbacks that you mentioned. Mm. And, and and these are more of a problem with the alternatives to basic income with mm. the current system than they are with with UBI, uh, where the, the the callbacks do not um, are not in place and the marginal tax rate is kept low throughout the system. So so under most reasonable models of UBI, the marginal tax rate is either a kind of a flat tax. Um, often they are kind of flat tax models of. Uh, of uh, taxing in a way, or or like the progression is very uh, modest, and and under those circumstances, you don't face these kind of uh, sudden obstacles um, or sudden uh, jumps that 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 are so irrational and and that dis- disincentivize work. Um, as far as the empirical results, uh, the the biggest experiments were done in the United States and Canada in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Uh, results. Uh, showed um, that uh, there were some small disincentive effects uh, to uh, people like housewives, um, people like uh, mothers who decided to stay at home to take care of their children. Um, and but that's, again, a matter of judgment if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, in some, some cases, um, having a mother at home would, would be a good thing for children. And mm. again, I, th- I think it's, a, it's, it's really up to individual choice. As long as the effects uh, on the work disincentive are small, then, uh, then I think it doesn't matter if, if some people choose to stay at home and do nothing. Um, it's it's really the sort of large scale effects that we're concerned about, not about individual anecdotes of of particular individuals or particular groups. Because mm. um, I think the if some people are lazy, then fine, they probably would not be highly productive members of society to begin with. Yeah. Um, if some people choose to stay at home and take care of their family, then that's a type of work as well. It's just unpaid work, and I, I think that's also a valuable contribution to uh, to family life um, and to social welfare. Yeah. Um, so I think we work. We might see a movement in some areas away from uh, low low paying uh, work uh, to voluntary um, work or unpaid work. Um, but I don't think that the social cost of that will be bad. They might even be positive. I mean, it, it might turn out to be an overall uh, benefit for society that if some like really rather low product, low, uh, low production, low, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, low productivity, um, uh, low income jobs will be eliminated or reduced mm. because after all, they might be replaced by robots who can do them more efficiently. Mm. And as uh, the great uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote in a wonderful essay called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, we really should be all aiming for a society where we have more leisure time and where we have more ability to choose for ourselves how much we want to work and how much we don't. Mm. Um, but of course, I do believe that work matters. Work is important. 
but uh, clinging on to this low productivity so works. So it's not healthy, right? It, it's not healthy at all. Mm. In fact, it, it's actually keeping our economic growth down by forcing governments to subsidize uh, um, low-income work and yeah. and, uh, and regulate technologies to kind of keep jobs in place. Um, and I think the negative effect of those policies is much more pronounced. Um, so I, I think that basic income could also be a way of transitioning from from these kind of um, makeshift jobs to uh, to actually jobs that people actually want to do mm. and that have, have actual actually real social and economic value. Mm. See, that's a very <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sort of put the question, but you you answer in a completely different manner to what I was expecting. But it's still a very, very interesting perspective on the sort of macro view of, of where you want to see uh, UBI affecting the economy on a larger scale rather than at the individual level. All right. So then continuing that and building up on the question of work incentives. Um, so Nathan Kibo from the Mises Institute, he introduces criticism that since UBI provides a sort of universal safety net, Individuals are protected from the competition of the free market, and thus they will be less likely to improve their, themselves or their value to the world. So do you think this criticism is legitimate? I mean, does a world with UBI set a minimum floor and also an unintended ceiling as well? It's it's almost identical to the work incentive question in, in, in the sense that the, the, the incentive for work is sort of identical to the question of mm. um, incentive for uh, kind of seeking out uh, I- improvements and so on. Although I don't think that they're exactly the same. I mean, I think that uh, that low income work kind of official um, work is not the only way in which people can contribute to society. Mm. And, uh, and again, confusing these two can have dire consequences, like in the case of like house, house, house mothers at home or, or voluntary work or unpaid work or, for example, um, coming up with ideas for businesses can be a, a slow process where for, for months or years, you do not get any income, but you might be kind of planning or, or developing your business model, and it might take a long time before seed money starts coming in. Mm. And and so so basic income would also enable people to to have a, a standing from which to um, to which to focus on those ideas that they have, those plans that they have. That they see as being their thing, that they mm. see as also being of most value to society. Mm. Um, if if some people, um, you know, um, want to study for a while, they can do that uh, on on the basic income. If some people need to re-educate themselves or retrain themselves, they can do that. Um, if people need to devote some time for their family or uh, taking care of an illness, then they can do that. Um, so I, I think the the question is more about do people in general um, have uh, things that they want to achieve and do in, in a society? And I mm. believe the answer is yes. And I do believe that work incentives matter. And I do believe that UBI improves in most cases on work incentives compared to the existing welfare system. Yeah. But But I think but I think that. Uh, creating this artificially fierce competition, uh, kind of this, you know, this red, red in tooth and claw kind of model of, of, uh, of co- competition for basic existence is I very unhealthy and it doesn't have those wonderful, um, effects on social, uh, progress that the Mises Institute, um, um, writer, um, mm. was saying. Um, I mean, I think that, of course, uh, if you eliminate social welfare, as you see in countries like India, then kids will, of course, we, you know, we use, you will see 10-year-old kids, you know, becoming entrepreneurs. But I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to, <laughs> you know, to have this kind of level of um, of self-reliance taught yeah. that early. 
yes. in some in some cases you do need to have provide people with with security and dignity and and yeah. basic welfare and um yeah i mean i i, I don't buy this social darwinistic uh, idea that yeah. that competition at any cost is the only value we should be um we should be pursuing mm, yeah you know when, when i was uh Listening to your answer, I think it kind of struck me that re- really these these criticisms are all about a matter of perspective, right? So when you know the the Mises Institute writer Nathan Keeble asks if you know this uh, if uh, this safety net will remove competition, remove the incentive to improve, you could look at from you could look at it from a different perspective and say, oh, you know what? Now you have a safety net. Now it is more uh, now now. It actually provides an incentive for people to take risk because now they have uh, the the the, yeah. the sort of um, the consequence of failure is is uh, not as uh, severe as before, you know. Yeah. Especially you can consider for people in transitory stages, this this is going to be very pronounced, especially for maybe like the 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 parent of like a supporting maybe a family of five, you know. He's thinking he he wants to get a better life for his family, but he can't leave his leave his job and try out a different venture if it's going to be super risky. Right, but with UBI now he gets an opportunity to go and try and and make something and, better and, of his life. Yeah, and 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 the value of risky investments and risky ideas is heavily unequal, mm. uh, in the sense that only a few of the really great ideas will have like massive uh, social benefits and and private uh, uh, returns as well. Um, and I think this is perfectly fine, especially in a society where. Um, where, you know, technological uh, innovations and, and business model innovations can have like huge effects on whole mm, society. Yeah. We should even encourage, um, a model where people can afford to take risks, even if many of them, even most of them will never turn out to be much of anything. Mm. Uh, if only a few of them do, that will have huge, huge social benefits. Society. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. All right, so I want to move on, and this will be sort of the last section on the the criticisms and on the the questions about UBI. So, on its surface, uh, the idea of a universal basic income sounds very much like free money, right? But we know that economically this cannot be the case. So, of course, one way that has been proposed to fund uh, UBI has been to completely eradicate the current welfare programs or a system of a complete replacement rather than a you know, uh, complementing the, the current welfare programs. So given that the issue of the welfare or benefit programs are very, very politically charged and they mean a lot to different uh, segments of people uh, or, or demographics in certain countries, so do you think that a complete replacement uh, can succeed politically? And or and as a follow-up question, do you think a structure where UBI complements the current welfare system, is that system feasible? Well, first, uh, I think full replacement is a is a bit of a difficult concept to use because it can also mean a lot of different things. Uh, like mm. the, the the really ultimate sort of libertarian solution would be to uh, eliminate all uh, uh, government programs, not only welfare yeah. programs, but even all government public services, and say, okay, we just give you cash, and then you can buy your road services from private road <laughs> companies and, and you know, yeah. that's the ultimate sort of replacement, right? Uh, but uh, speaking more in terms of the welfare uh, kind of provisions that are given the benefit structure, then yes, I do believe that most of them can and should be replaced. And I think that even people who generally favor high levels of uh, government benefits and even people who believe that perhaps there are some groups who deserve additional benefits, say, for example, mm. people who are disabled or blind, for example, and perhaps they need like some government money that comes on top of basic income. And I'm perfectly willing to accommodate on that point. Uh, even I think most of those people would be willing to say that we can replace maybe, you know, two thirds to 80 percent of the of the benefits uh, with UBI um, um, and still have a couple of extra benefits on top of that. And then it's just a matter of how many of those extra benefits on top do you want? Do you want housing benefits on top of that? Do you want disability mm. benefits? And that those are really the, the kind of difficult questions, I think. Um, but as for me personally, I would 
I would totally replace unemployment benefits, student benefits, basic sick benefits. Um, uh, I would even include government pensions into this and say that there should be no separate pension system either, uh, except private pensions on top of the basic government pension of, of basic income. That is, UBI would replace the basic pension system as well. Um, mm. Housing benefits too, I would I would include, which would mean that the basic level would would have to be high enough to also cover the, the costs of of basic rents in in most places. Um, so I mean, I'm willing to go quite far in this direction of replacement. And why? I think it's because um, if people have access to cash, then it doesn't matter if it, they're it should it should theoretically make it such that they don't they don't need to depend on these sort of benefits anymore, right? If yeah. you are given the the sort of the, the cash value. Exactly. The yeah. cash value mm. uh, performs the same function whether we call it unemployment benefits or whatever we call it, you know. Money is mm. money and money money can provide can buy you services if the if the markets are free enough to be able to provide those services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So that's it for the uh, questions on UBI. It's been a fantastic discussion. And uh, so so before we end, Alvar, I'm just a little curious about your background, right? So I yeah. noticed from your from your website, you're interested in many 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 fields other than your work in uh, political philosophy and UBI. So including something like uh, including stuff like you post, posted music on SoundCloud and YouTube, and even wrote academic papers on film with titles such as. The Cinema of David Lynch or The Hero Myth and the Apocalypse in Alan Moore's Watchmen. So I just wanted to ask, you know, how do you maintain interest in so many fields? Are, are these interests, you know, are they phases where you just come and go or are you just like a jack of all trades? Well, um, that's a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked that um, because yeah. I, I do have a kind of a passion for a broad kind of humanities education because that's the kind of where I started. I started as a... Yeah as a student of literature and of languages and of, of, mm. of cultural studies. And I do believe that society in the end um, is about man's search for meaning and, um, and of, of, of vision and of, of content for their lives. And, and, mm. and in this really literature and, and movies and music um, serve the function of, Giving purpose and and direction to people's lives, especially because I'm not religious and I believe that you know most religions uh, provide kind of a false sense of direction or purpose. Uh, mm. I believe that we need to, to like the late great Christopher Hitchens said, uh, literature should be like the replacement of the old moralities of of myth and of uh, of religion. And mm. these kind of secular uh, moralities that movies provide, for example, are very important. But as a as a scholar, of course, you have to make sacrifices and you have to make choices as to what you focus on. And the reason why I've moved away from that as an as an academician, although I sometimes still dabble in in those areas when I have extra time, is that I believe that the rules and laws of society are the ones that enable a free society to function. And so mm. I'm trying to promote a free society through uh, social and economic freedom in the broadest possible sense. And so within such a society where the, where the, this freedom of speech and of expression uh, exists, then uh, people can also produce art and literature and music and all these wonderful things that are really the the heart and soul of any free society, right? But yeah. uh, but there's still so many obstacles that politicians place in, uh, you know, um, uh, for the free expression of people and for the ability to produce, uh, you know, uh, art and and tech and science and technology that yeah. that I've been more focused on making sure that future generations will have those opportunities to pursue their own. Uh, desires and and paths in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is so fascinating. It's you, you kind of like tell a story about uh, of yourself about how you know you started out having this interest in literature and film, and then how you sort of wanted to pursue the deeper question of 
you know, what it is that enables, you know, people, individuals who have these interests or passions yeah. in the first place. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. All right, so last question here. If you could leave a lasting legacy in only one of your interests, what would it be? <laughs> well, I think... Um, <laughs> I think philosophy, which is really the thing that unites all these, uh, is what I consider myself to be a student of. I mean, I'm a philosopher mm. first and foremost, and that means I'm interested in the big questions. And mm. I really wish that my kind of my vision of freedom and free society and the relationship that freedom has to to, to welfare and happiness is mm. is what would be my lasting legacy but i might change my mind and in 10 years i might be interested in another question but but i don't but i don't think that this question will go away anytime soon <laughs> so i think i'll be quite happy working on this issue for a long time to come <laughs> <laughs> all right so okay so with that brings the end to today's episode thank you so much otto for being a guest on the show uh, you can find all of Otto's work and information at his website, www.autoletto.com. The link will be in the description. Uh, last question. Do you, if, if people are interested in UBI, uh, do you have any philosophers or thinkers that you could point them to in the direction of? Well, first of all, you can find some of my essays on my website, and if, if those those don't quench your thirst, then, <laughs> then I, I can point you to the direction of for example, Milton Friedman's classic Capitalism and Freedom, which deals with the negative income tax. Um, or if you're interested in like political economy, then do read Hayek's works like The Constitution of Liberty, uh, which deals with the classical liberal, liberal or libertarian approaches to welfare state, for example. Um, there, there's a lot of good work being done. Um, if you're just interested in basic income, do go and check out the basic income news website maybe you can also put up a link uh, on that mm, there sure. um yeah so that that's a good way to keep track of a lot of the different things that are happening in the world right now mm. all right so as usual you can help the economical rice podcast by liking or sharing this episode or by subscribing on itunes this has been your host danny with guest auto at the economical rice podcast i hope you tune in next week wherever here we serve the grains of capitalism